Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today, we are touching on our last point of the TULIP series, that is Perseverance of the Saints or Preservation of the Saints. So much like our topic on limited atonement, comparing and contrasting Arminianism and Calvinism on eternal security or perseverance of the saints becomes much easier than our previous discussions on the human will and predestination and things of that nature. Um, and, And that's really just because, again, like limited atonement, this idea of perseverance or eternal security will logically fit into each system respectively. Now, while Calvinism had more variations on the atonement than Arminianism did, the Arminians have more variations on this topic than Calvinism does. Calvinism is pretty straightforward on it. Um, So like our previous two sections, we are going to mostly focus on the positive case and less on polemics. And this section is essentially dealing with, if you don't know what perseverance or preservation of the saints is, it is dealing with the question of, can we lose our salvation? And we're going to begin with the Calvinist position first because of that general uniformity that I mentioned already. So Calvinism on eternal security. This is the P and TULIP. Um, And again, it's called Perseverance of the Saints or sometimes Preservation of the Saints. The Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes the point as follows. Quote, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And that's in chapter 17, paragraph 1. So in Calvinism, it is this idea of God's preservation of his people and the saints' perseverance in the faith that distinguishes the Calvinist position from the popular position of what is called once saved, always saved. And while once saved, always saved is sometimes used as a synonym for perseverance or preservation of the saints, there's a good reason for distinguishing them. Um, but we'll get to that here in a second. This position of eternal security is grounded in all of the previous doctrines mentioned. They're all closely related. So in looking at texts like Romans 8 again, we find the golden chain. Those whom God foreknew, he will call, he will justify, and he will ultimately glorify. So part of Paul's argument in Romans 8 is that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and that God has indeed predestined us to glorification or conformity to Christ's image. Philippians 1.6 points out that, quote, He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, end quote. And so this is to say that God began this work of saving you, and he will ensure that it comes to completion. Now, the Calvinists will also go back to texts such as John 6 that we talked about, Um, in previous episodes, that all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And that's John 6, 37-39. So all that the Father gives to the Son will not be lost, but instead he will raise them up on the last day, which is glorification. So a similar sentiment is expressed in John 10, 27-30 that we also discussed in the episodes on calling, which states the following, quote, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
The Calvinists will further point out that Paul states that Jesus Christ will sustain the saints until the end in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 8, and that they will have a guarantee of their redemption and the Holy Spirit, who is their seal in Ephesians 1. So this is God's preservation. But the Calvinist position on compatibilism also brings out the reality that Christians are responsible to continue and persevere in Christ. This call to persevere is echoed in the New Testament in a variety of ways, especially the warning passages. Now, a few questions will come to mind on the issue of eternal security in the Calvinist framework. One, how do we understand those warning passages that seem to imply that one can lose their salvation? And two, what of those who are apostates? And three, how is this distinct from once saved, always saved? So to question one, the warning passages, within the Reformed tradition, there are a number of answers, but I will briefly provide one perspective. This perspective is that the warning passages in Scripture are addressed to believers, and they are threatened with eternal destruction if they commit apostasy. Now, while genuine believers won't commit apostasy, the texts are predominantly for them and a means by which God brings about perseverance, that is, diligence, renewed faith, self-examination, and so forth. This view is found in individuals such as Charles Spurgeon, John Owen, Bavnik, Burkhoff, Calvin, and many others. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic notes, quote, warnings do not prove that any of the addressed will apostatize, but simply that the use of means is necessary to prevent them from committing this sin, end quote. Bavnik on the warning passages in his Reformed Dogmatics says that these passages are the way in which God himself confirms his promise and gift through believers. They are the means by which perseverance in life is realized. So these passages are the means by which God keeps his people growing and persevering in the faith. So for question two, that is, what about those who do leave the faith? The answer is found in the reality that not all Christians are actually Christians. And we find this idea with the false prophets in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, but especially in 1 John. 1 John 2, 18 through 19 simply states that the apostates and false teachers, quote, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Sean Wright on this passage states, quote, John does not say that these false teachers lose their faith. Rather, he reasons in an ex post facto manner. Their abandonment of the fellowship proves that they were never truly part of the church, end quote. So as for question three, uh, what is the distinction between this view and once saved, always saved? Our answer is that generally... And I want to emphasize that generally because there are different articulations of once saved, always saved. Generally, the phrase emphasizes the reality that God will preserve his people, but it does not emphasize or highlight the reality that Christians will persevere until the end. Um, in other words, usually the phrase once saved, always saved to modern ears means something akin to once and done confession, an altar call, or profession of faith with no evidence of a changed life affected from union with Christ. This is different from the Reformed or Calvinistic perspective. Historically, the Reformed tradition has stressed the importance of the need for possessing a faith rather than a profession without possession. Furthermore, Calvinists stress the living nature of faith and reject the idea of a category of Christian that is carnal, yet still somehow saved. Furthermore, it may be interesting to individuals to know that the Calvinist confessions point out that Christians can fall into a period of grievous sins, but that ultimately they will be restored 
if their conversion is genuine. Now, ultimately, the Calvinist position is that those who have been predestined will be glorified and that God is working in believers to both will and to work for his good pleasure. Those who have apostatized, that has left the faith, were never Christians to begin with, but rather false professors who may have tasted the Holy Spirit via being part of a Christian community or other graces. And we talked a little bit about that, I believe, in um, the episodes on the calling. So the Calvinist position is logically in step with the other points of TULIP. It focuses on God's determination to save a people, but also it does not eliminate the reality of sanctification and growth in union with Christ. There is that compatibilistic framework again. Furthermore, there is this dimension that man cannot lose that which was never his to earn, salvation. Salvation from beginning to end is brought about by God's grace and plan to save a people for himself. So let's move into Arminianism and eternal security. Now, Arminians differ on the point of eternal security uh, between one another. And so here we're going to summarize Matthew Pinson's articulation on classical Arminianism, which appears to be the majority position. But of course, check me on that. Um, in his articulation, Pinson critiques those who wish to uphold libertarian freedom and eternal security. He says that they are inconsistent, and instead he points out that there is an affirmation of God's preservation of the saints or eternal security of the believer. However, like election, it is conditional upon one's status as a believer. In other words, those who persevere remain believers and thus have eternal security but they can also leave the faith and cease believing. Eternal security is wrapped up in Christ. To have eternal security is to be united to Christ. Losing eternal security is leaving Christ and not having that eternal security. There is no guarantee that these individuals will persevere until the end. However, believers, as long as they remain in union with Christ through faith, are righteous in him. And so for Arminianism, the warning passages and their conditional clauses, you know, if you continue, uh, if you endure, if you overcome, you will be saved, are important for this point. Those passages that Calvinists will utilize for eternal security, for the Arminian, they apply, but they're conditional upon one's union with Christ, or remaining in union with Christ. Pinson, however, emphasizes that this is not a maintaining of works, and he critiques some, quote, works-oriented Arminianism, end quote. And he critiques this because the condition is remaining in Christ for salvation, not seeking to earn righteousness via works. So let's just stress that again. I'm just going to repeat it. Penson emphasizes that this is not a maintaining of works or seeking to earn righteousness via works. Instead, it is just a condition of remaining in Christ for salvation. Pinson will state this, quote, The best way to get beyond the divide between Calvinists and Arminians on perseverance or apostasy is to emphasize the continuing in the righteousness of Christ alone through faith alone. Pinson argues that this is better than those who will have a view of persevere via faith plus law-keeping or eternal security that just relies on a past decision that cannot be reversed. He says, quote, the Reformed Arminian approach alone does justice to the warning passages which warn believers to continue in the faith lest they fall from grace, as well as the promise passages which assure believers that their security is in Christ alone if they continue in faith alone. For Pinson, Arminians who hold to eternal security and Calvinists are importing notions onto the text 
regarding eternal security, wherein the text never makes a guarantee that those who take a hold of faith will continue indefinitely in the faith. For Pinson, this becomes more clear in the warning passages that imply the opposite. In responding to the notion that if we lose our salvation, there would be no assurance of salvation, Pinson simply responds that assurance is in the person and work of Christ and our union to him. Assurance is not in the promise that we won't apostatize in the future. Pinson observes, quote, When responding to theological and logical arguments by Calvinists, Arminians readily grant that if Calvinists can prove that God absolutely destines people for salvation unconditionally and draws them irresistibly to it, then certain perseverance logically follows and theologically fits. Thus, the arguments between classical Calvinists and Arminians is always going to go back to the other points of Calvinism, end quote. And Pinson's comment here really just highlights what I've been saying about uh, perseverance of the saints and limited atonement being logically outworking from the other points of these systems. And so the real debate is going to be on the human will, unconditional election, or the nature of grace. Anyway, for the Arminian that rejects eternal security, the warning passages are clear enough to establish a reality that Christians can genuinely be united to Christ and then leave the faith. Yet Pinson also speaks briefly about two types of apostasy that some Arminians articulate. The first type or kind is called total or final apostasy. This type of apostasy is considered rare and severe. And this type of apostasy is a renouncing of belief and it cannot be remedied. The second type of apostasy, however, is that of backsliding, which is considered a common and reoccurring apostasy that occurs through sinning. Now, Pinson states that Reformed Arminians tend to hold to only one kind of apostasy, and that is the first kind. And he will say that this first kind of apostasy is spoken of Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Matthew 12, 31, and so on. For other Arminians, that is, not Reformed Arminians, the second kind of apostasy is caused by unconfessed sin, and repentance is key for eternal security in this view. Pinson argues, however, that this type of apostasy is not found in Scripture, and instead, Scripture only presents one type of falling away. Furthermore, against the second type of apostasy, he states that Reformed Arminians, quote, argue that justification by faith is a one-for-all category that incorporates the believer into a status of being in Christ rather than a fragile possession one is carrying in one's hands. Third, they argue that apostasy, too, is an implicit denial of the doctrine of justification by the imputed righteousness of Christ apprehended through faith. Justifying faith does not come and go, wax and wane, as believers sin and receive forgiveness for their sins. That is the way many Arminians see justifying faith. They think that when an unbeliever gets into a condition of unconfessed sin, that indicates the absence of faith. Thus again, for many Arminians, justification is more like a substance one possesses rather than a forensic status into which one is incorporated. Reformed Arminians do not view justifying faith and its relation to sin in the believer's life in this way. Rather, they see justification by faith as a decisive once-for-all status into which the believer is incorporated. Thus, even when the believers are in a condition of sin of which they have not repented, they remain in union with Christ and they retain their in-Christ status. Their justifying faith is still intact, which maintains their union with Christ. Union with Christ is a status into which the believer has been incorporated. As long as the believer is in union with Christ, his or her sins are covered." End quote. So ultimately, because Reformed Arminians holds the same principle as Calvinists on justification and faith, it rejects the notion that sinning and failing to repent affects one's status with God. Thus, because justification is by faith and not by maintaining works for the Reformed Arminian, there is only one type of apostasy, 
and that is the total renouncing of the faith and no longer being united to the person and work of Christ. And so now we have reached the conclusion of our Tulip series. And I have to be honest with you, I'm I'm happy that this has wrapped up because, to be honest, I don't like spending all my time focusing on the subject. It was a heavily requested topic, and so I wanted to address it, and I thought, hey, this would be a good idea in order to address some straw men on both sides and hopefully just lay out the positions. And so hopefully this has informed you to some degree to allow you to better understand the other position while you continue your studies, because as we said in the beginning, this is not going to be sufficient on its own. You need to go into the text, you need to do the work, you need to think through these issues. And even as I've read through them, I have had to uh, wrestle with some concepts and think through my conclusions. And so let's get to my conclusion on this series. So as we have reached the conclusion of comparing and contrasting uh, classical Arminianism and Calvinism. My hope is, again, that some straw men would be burned down and the key points of agreement could lend themselves to more fruitful discussion. I really wanted to emphasize those key points of agreement because, honestly, we can all do better at interacting on this particular topic, and there are much bigger fights kind of plaguing the theological world, such as the tendency towards work righteousness or, or just flat-out Pelagianism or even more pressing issues such as the deity of Christ and the rise of modalism. Um, and so I wanted to emphasize those points of agreement, and hopefully you can see how in some way the Calvinists and Arminian have the same concerns on different issues that arise in the work righteousness or Pelagian frameworks. So it is on these points of agreement that Calvinists and Arminians should happily find common ground and speak out with a unified voice saying, it is by grace that salvation begins works out and ends. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, unto the glory of God alone. And while there are certainly many disagreements to be had between the differing systems, and we just scratch the surface on them, these disagreements can be had in a respectable manner. I have a lot of Reformed Arminian brothers that I've spoken to that I highly respect. In our formal conclusion of this series, I want to point out two myths that are raised in the discussion on Calvinism and Arminianism. The first myth is that Arminianism and Calvinism are opposites. And the second myth is that a hybrid form of Calvinism and Arminianism is possible. The first myth polarizes, and the second naively attempts to unify. Naively, but with good intention most times. But by the end of the series, it should be evident why these are indeed myths. There is a sense of continuity, especially historically, as we find both having their key battleground in the Netherlands, but also there is a major sense of discontinuity. So while Calvinism and Arminianism can almost seem to be saying the same things with different terms and emphasis, we must remember that they are different enough that a hybrid, in so much as they are classically defined and articulated, is simply not possible. What is possible, however, is recognizing the unity in our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and an extension of table fellowship. So what about the informal conclusion? Well, the informal conclusion is that I am still a Calvinist. Um, I did have challenges to my position throughout this reading. Um, as I was reading, I wanted to point out that Matthew Pinson and Leroy Fourlines' Exit Jesus of Romans 9 has been the best I have heard 
from Arminians. And I just wanted to praise that because I really enjoyed how they were articulating. And I was like, I can see the overlap here. And I can see how within the Reformed position and the Reformed Arminian position, how it would really just have to go back to foreknowledge. And so that was a great discussion. I really enjoyed that. I also enjoyed um, seeing more articulations of Calvinists who hold that faith precedes regeneration, because I do think that that is a tension that Calvinists have to deal with if they hold that regeneration precedes faith. That is the idea that sanctification begins before justification in some shape or form. That said, I still struggle with the concept of Arminianism's universal prevenient grace, but I do see the merit in those Arminians who would say that the gospel is the means of this prevenient grace. I also struggle with the various articulations of foreknowledge in Arminianism, especially as it relates to omniscience. But on the flip side, I can also say that I do see difficulties in things like the genuineness of the universal call and the general call in Calvinism. At the same time, I do struggle with the Arminian hypothetical that God could ultimately fail to save a people. Um, I, I find that there are tensions and difficulties on both sides that at some point we have to sit back and say, these are the tensions I'm okay with, but I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture that my position is rooted in the biblical text, which ultimately I find compatibilism to be the witness of the biblical text. I see that tension of compatibilism from Genesis to Revelation. I think libertarianism has a lot of questions. I think that you can make the, the biblical case for it because you can assume that choices are being made, therefore they can be made in a libertarian sense. But at the same time, those texts of divine sovereignty that ultimately does put God at the forefront of everything that's happening in a way that is specific and purposeful in every interaction poses an issue for libertarianism. I find that distinction that is often made in libertarianism that God sometimes has this specific purpose and plan through each action, but sometimes doesn't. And it's just to maintain the libertarian freedom of the will, but he's working it out for his own good to be problematic. Um, I also find that there are examples that I can pull from the text of both compatibilism and issues for libertarian arguments. For example, for compatibilism, we talked about Joseph, we talked about the cross, we talked about um, the inspiration of scripture, and if libertarianism is true, then all those events could have been otherwise when the text makes it clear that they could not have been otherwise. With the example of inspiration of scripture, we actually end up at a weird place with libertarianism because how do we know that Paul didn't deviate from the Holy Spirit in writing scripture? Compatibilism makes sense in that framework, while libertarianism leaves it up to a question. Um, furthermore, when it comes to libertarianism, a big argument for it is that in order for love to be genuine, it has to be from a libertarian freedom of the will. But at the same time, we have the Son, who is love. Could the Son have not loved the Father? And I think the libertarian would agree, no, because that's part of his nature. And that goes back to lending weight to the compatibilistic framework. And at the same time, we'd ask, in the new heavens and new earth, will man be able to sin? And many will say no. And I think that that poses a problem for the libertarian perspective because they will be limited in their libertarian freedom of the will while also loving God. Um, and so I do think that there is a level of tension. However, I will say that neither position really solves theodicy in a way that's satisfying to us. I, I 
I know that that sounds like a cop out for for both sides, but theodicy is always going to have tensions, and you can always add in. But what if to any articulation on solving the problem at some level? We have to sit back like Job and say, you know what? I spoke of things I didn't understand. You are God. There are other questions too that are similar to that question of theodicy about um, God creating people who he ultimately knew infallibly that would go to hell or he left in their sins infallibly to go to hell. You still have the same difficulties. Of course, from a compatibilistic framework, I say that this all has purpose and that he still allows them to move freely in their will it's just not going to be satisfactory to the Arminian. But for the Calvinist, it's not going to be satisfactory to say, well, God still created this person infallibly knowing that they would not ultimately choose him, ending up in the same result. And so there, there are different arguments like that where a lot of times, if you flip the argument, you'll find the same tensions. And so I think we need to go back to which view between compatibilism and libertarianism makes the most sense of the scriptural data. In terms of the debate on unconditional and conditional election, I think that Penson and Leroy Fourline's discussion on Romans 9 is excellent, and those points need to be considered, but that those points do not exclude that text from also teaching unconditional election. I thought it was a great exegesis, and I thought it was a great element of uh, God's freedom to allow Gentiles to come into the faith, but I don't think that it quite addressed the the points that Calvinist will bring up on that text. For example, when it came to the text on the potter and the clay, the Arminian articulation was ultimately that the clay molds itself, but that's the complete opposite point of the potter and the clay discussion, especially whenever we tie in those elements that I talked about in Second Temple Judaism with compatibilism and Ben Sira. I think that's another compelling argument for compatibilism, that is that, that view that was likely Paul's, especially as he's utilizing a text that reflects that same view. But I think that you could, if you wanted to, instead of going to Romans 9, you could say the debate will always land back to how we're understanding foreknowledge. And I think that the Reformed Arminian position of simple foreknowledge helps prevent a lot of issues that comes up with omniscience. And so I appreciated that explanation from the Arminian position. However, I still find the Calvinist perspective to be compelling on that point. And once you make your decision on foreknowledge, the rest follows, I think. When it came to my study of grace and the nature of grace, I was particularly happy to read the Arminian and the Calvinist agreement on the necessity of grace that comes before. I think really, ultimately, the difficulty for me was the the proofs for a universal prevenient grace. I, I don't find that compelling. And I think that that's all I can really think of for my informal um, conclusion. I'm going to forget some stuff. I had a lot of thoughts. I didn't write them down, though. At any rate, um, it was great to revisit this topic. It had been a while since I spent a good amount of time on this topic. Because like I said, I, I really don't find it to be the most important thing to talk about. And so that's a wrap. Those are my conclusions. That's where I land. And if you hear my conclusions and then you go back and listen to my podcast episodes on the tulip series and you still can't tell where i land after giving the conclusion if you didn't already know where i land then i accomplished what i wanted to accomplish i wanted to articulate these positions without coming across as biased i know that i did for sure at some points but i I did my best so that said god bless you all thank you so much for being a part of this 
series. Thank you so much for being a part of Christ is the Cure. If you have enjoyed this series, continue becoming a part of the support team and supporting Christ the Cure through season four, which will start sometime in the fall. We're going to take the summer off. If you're a patron, you will have patron courses. I'll probably have a brief end of season four wrap up episode that follows this one. Um, so yeah, I hope that this series was helpful in some shape or form. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful week and a wonderful summer. Remembering that union with Christ is more important than affinity to Calvin or Arminius. Let us be united in the person and work of Jesus Christ and give all glory to him and praise each other as brothers and sisters united in the faith unto his glory and look forward to the day when we can all in union worship before the throne in the new heavens and new earth. God bless you all.